Imagine being a high school student in love with science. Each week, you open a new chapter in your textbook to learn one amazing subject after another. Zoology, the planets, the equations of motion. But then one week, you come to class and your teacher announces that she's going to skip the next chapter because she doesn't believe in it. Perplexed, you take a look at what you skipped. It's evolution. And you wonder, what's so wrong in teaching or learning about evolution? This is a story for many students, especially those in the rural south of the United States. Today, we're talking to one of those people. As a student, she wondered why her teacher skipped teaching evolution. Today, she's an expert in biology and evolution. But not only that, she also educates teachers, helping them bridge the gap between science and religion for students in the South. How does she do it? Find out on this episode of Spark Dialogue Podcasts. This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they relate to society, culture, religion, ethics, and history. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. The supporters of this podcast will have access to some bonus content about Amanda's story. You can access this through the Patreon page at patreon.com sparkdialogue. And if you're not a patron and you want to become one, you can join by going to our website, sparkdialogue.com, or to the Patreon page at patreon.com sparkdialogue. Hello, my name is Dr. Amanda Lee Glaze Krampus, and I am an assistant professor of middle grades and secondary ed at Georgia Southern University outside of Savannah, Georgia. When Amanda was growing up, science was all around her. For Amanda, it wasn't just something you learned in a textbook. It was real a process that was unfolding everywhere she looked. I actually grew up on a farm in rural Appalachia um, in the northeast foothills of the Appalachian Mountains in rural Alabama in a very small community in a Southern Baptist missionary and ministry family. And so my education in terms of things that intersect with science started very young. Um, growing up on a farm, you know, you're surrounded by science all the time. It's life and death. It's watching things change. It's the way you breed and do your animal husbandry. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, I was informally educated on science really from birth, not realizing that I was learning these concepts that would come to grow for me. And I, I had a relatively normal, I would say, formal educational experience. I started preschool at a very young age. My mother was a teacher, my grandmother, my aunts, pretty much all the women in my family are teachers. And so everything was something of an educational experience. I was taught from a very young age to question everything, to explore, to test things, to to really look deeper for answers. And so going through school, it wasn't one of those things where it was, oh, I'm a scientist, I have to be a scientist, but I was really tuned into a desire to be a doctor. I wanted to help people, I wanted to do all the surgeries, that kind of thing, and even at a young age, I remember being voted most likely to be a brain surgeon somewhere in elementary school, which was pretty funny. I think there's a picture of me cutting into a model brain with what looks like a machete, which might, have been ter- which might have been terrifying to people if they actually saw that coming as their surgeon. But, uh, but no, I mean, I had a, a very normal, I think, educational experience. 
And so this is how it was for Amanda. As an evangelical Christian, she didn't see any reason to see a conflict between spending time in science classes during the week and sitting in church on Sundays. But all of this changed in high school. When I got to 10th grade in my advanced biology class, I remember getting to this portion of the book where the teacher told us, okay, well, the next unit is, you know, evolution, but we're not going to talk about that. We're, I I don't believe in it. So we're going to move on. Sometimes this approach backfires on adults. Tell a kid not to do something, not to read something. And what do they do? They read it. And it just struck me as very strange. Um, You know, coming up in that era of education, we followed the book, it seemed like, very closely. And so you always did the section questions and the vocab and things like that. So there was this natural pattern to it. And so to come to something that's in the book, something that they recognized as an authority, but then say, I don't believe in this, we're not going to do it, didn't sit right with me. I, I wanted to understand, okay, what's the big deal about this? What's the big deal, Amanda thought. As an innocent student, she saw absolutely no problem with what she was reading. Why was her teacher so afraid of teaching evolution? It automatically connected to things that I saw growing up on the farm. I mean, you look at artificial selection. Well, that's exactly what we do when we select the cattle that we want to breed to get a certain size or for certain traits. You know, we did it with our dogs as well. Just so many different examples that made sense. And so I'm thinking, well, this is logical. I don't understand. You know, for me, there really wasn't a conflict. And and that was the thing that was hard. It was like, oh, this makes sense. You know, I could mentally, I, I won't even say rationalize, but the connections to me were just there. God is there. God exists. You know, this is a beautiful you know, surrounding that has been created for humankind to nurture, you know, to be stewards of the earth. And to me, this was just, okay, well, this is how we explain something. And, you know, it contributes to the greater story. It never occurred to me, oh, this is supposed to be something bad until I was told, you know, it it was literally treated like it was intervention time. You know, um, it was a taboo. And, and it is in a lot of places, the concept of evolution or even science in general to some communities is a true taboo. There is a tangible fear there. Amanda didn't see the big deal at first, so she went home and talked to her family about it. But when I came home to my family and tried to talk about it, it was very, very upsetting and so, you know, it caused this critical incident, so to speak, in, in my life timeline. Because growing up in a ministry family, we had always really focused on the evangelical nature of our faith, um, testimony, reaching out to others, sharing our stories. But a lot of that hinged on a literal translation of biblical text. Now, while I didn't really think about that at the time, when I brought that home to my family to discuss, you know, what it was that happened with my teacher and what I had learned from reading, you know, it was really brought to the forefront that, oh, this is not something we talk about. You know, evolution is out to prove that God didn't exist. You know, people who believe in that, you know, believe in evolution are you know, dismissing the presence of God. And and so it, it really caused this very big 
very destructive conflict in my life between something that made logical sense and, and a lifetime of being told to look for answers, ask questions, and, and then suddenly being, you know, coming home and really being shut down um, and being told, no, this is something we don't talk about. And so it wasn't something that, excuse the Southernism, stuck in my crawl enough <laughs> <laughs> that I immediately decided, oh, I'm going to study this and this is going to be what I do. You know, I, I didn't realize till much later the long lasting impact that conflict moment had on everything that I did for the next, you know, 10 to 15 years. Going to college in the Deep South, things were a little bit different. But still, there was a lot of taboo surrounding the teaching of evolution. Well, I did go to school in the South. Among the professors, no, there was no taboo. But among the students, there absolutely was. There would be fewer students in some of the classes on the days that evolution was taught. Um, I can attest to this as a teacher, you know, as a professor who has taught applied sciences courses in biology, that there are students who actively will not come to class when you're talking about evolution. You know, there are students that are very engaged for the most part, and then when you get to those topics, they suddenly withdraw. But how the per professors perceived it and how the students, many of the students perceive it, were very different. And it was often characterized by people even making statements, you know, we're going to talk about evolution now, but, you know, we're, we're not trying to, we're not going to talk about your religion or your beliefs, and this is not about faith, this is about what science tells us. So it's a it's enough of a palpable concern on both sides that professors frequently feel the need to give a disclaimer or, you know, otherwise disengage what would usually be a very lively, open discussion area out of concern that they're going to have pushback. And this is even more prevalent, you know, in K-12, where some teachers just don't teach it at all to this day, just like my experience, because they have a perception that there's going to be pushback, even if they're accepting of evolution, or maybe they're not accepting of evolution, and they are afraid that by teaching it, they are damaging the souls of their students. She wasn't put off for long. Even though this was considered taboo by her family, her church, her teacher, and so many others in her community, her love of science, including evolution, came back to her. I wasn't even studying science. My undergraduate degrees are in criminal justice and political science. And then I decided I wanted to teach. And when I went into education, that's when I got back into, okay, I'd rather teach science than history and started taking all of my science classes and just really fell in love with what I was doing. I think I'd always been in love with it, but being on the farm, it was part of my life every day. So I didn't really see it as a field to go into. I did graduate research in the applied sciences in evolutionary biology that ended up ironically being the field that I wandered into. But we're having a conversation in a lab one day about, you know, our experiences and what we've learned. And when I told them that I didn't learn about evolution really at all formally until college, they were just jaw dropped. I mean, it was like, wait, you what? And so I realized that, you know, a lot of people do experience this, but a lot of people don't. And so I wanted to understand why. 
And that's what led me into this line of research that, you know, that was 11 years ago. Still to this day, I'm researching and studying the teaching and learning of evolution, climate change, and other publicly considered controversial because they cause personal conflict in the United States and, and now across the world. So what is this phenomenon? Sometimes teachers themselves look at evolution and the color drains from their face. They imagine that anyone who believes in evolution is going to hell. They can't possibly teach something like that, as they think goes against the religion of their students and their religion themselves. Or sometimes they might just be afraid of the pushback from administration or parents in what they teach. It takes on a lot of different forms. So there's there's tons of research that's been conducted in, in education at the K-12 level when it comes to teaching and pre-service teachers, those who are getting ready to teach but haven't gotten out of college yet, and in-service teachers, those who are already teaching, you know, many of them express concerns that they are going to face administrative pushback, parental pushback, community pushback, you know, so, so there are fears of external pushback, but then in the case of many teachers being evangelical tradition, especially across the South. You know, there is a fear that if they even talk about it with their students, they could be leading their students away from a life of faith and therefore jeopardizing their place in heaven. So you've got a lot of different dynamics going on, a lot of dynamics at play in this conversation where people are concerned about it, even if they've never experienced any pushback, they feel like the potential is there. So I'm on a research project right now with teachers in Alabama, and it's uh, Learning Unity and Diversity in Alabama, and it's an NSF-funded project that is under the auspices of uh, Smithsonian's Human Origins Program. And when we first set out four years ago to gain access in the state to do this research, several of us who are native to the area, so myself and my colleague Lee Meadows at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, actually made videos and had conversations with people so that when their superintendents got this letter asking for permission to teach evolution units, and especially human evolution units in Alabama, they wanted to know, you know, who was doing the research, what was the agenda, you know, how did we view things? And, you know, myself and Lee, um, as well as others on the team are people of faith. And so having that assurance from us actually is what allowed many of our teachers who wanted to participate the ability to get permission from their systems or their districts to participate. So it's a very tangible thing. I mean, we see it in the legislation that's coming out of the Southeast. We see it in, you know, decisions in the standards. I mean, Alabama, where I came from, did not have the word evolution in the standards until 2016. In fact, it's not just evolution. There are actually many issues that may be controversial. Everything from the Big Bang to stem cells to, you know, any type of cloning, evolution, climate change. I mean, there's there's a wide variety. The thing that I think makes it one or the other is the role of human beings in these. You know, if you're cloning, if you're doing stem cell research, then you're you're messing with creation of humans. If you're talking about climate change, you know, a lot of people use, 
humankind as the pinnacle that is meant to, you know, rule over the earth and have the impression that, okay, well, we're just going to screw it all up and God's just going to bail us out. They seem to miss that scripture where it says we are put here to be stewards of the earth. And then, of course, with evolution, I mean, even the, the Gallup poll that's been running for close to 40 years now, you know, a majority of people are either either they don't accept evolution or they're willing to accept some of evolution, but from a theistic view, right? Um, very few percent are actually non-theistic evolution, maybe 20% on average over the last almost 40 years. But where people draw the line is human evolution. There are many people that believe or will accept that. I like to use the word accept because belief is a faith function, right? So a lot of people accept that evolution takes place in what they consider lower organisms. So everything else on earth. But when you talk about human evolution, that's when things get really, really touchy, even with people outside of evangelical literalist traditions, because people want to say that, okay, well, if we evolved, then we're not specially created. You know, um, the scientific explanation of things can't get into the concept of special creation. It's only based on what we're able to observe and piece together from evidence in the physical world. We can't consider metaphysical or supernatural explanations or interventions. So they see that as, you know, wanting to remove God from our explanation of things. But in reality, it's just a different way of knowing. We all have a variety of ways of knowing that we lean on to make sense of the world, whether that's religious ways of knowing, philosophical ways of knowing, scientific ways of knowing. And the combination of those things gives us a much richer understanding and and positionality in terms of what is our place and what is our role in the world. But very frequently, people fail to realize that there are different definitions, there are different levels of evidence. There are different goals to those different ways of knowing. And so trying to pigeonhole all of them into one way means that the other doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. So they're complementary to one another, but they're really not interchangeable. Understanding these and the reason why people have a problem with these topics is the first step in communication. There are a lot of different hangups depending on the people, and a lot of them tie in really to the nature of science. So there's a lot of misinformation out there that that spreads like wildfire. So a lot of people that I have spoken to, because I'm a storyteller, I'm I'm a native southerner and storytelling is very much a part of who we are. And I love talking to people and collecting their stories. And I hear things like, well, science is out to prove that God doesn't exist. You know, well, actually, no, science can't use God as an explanation at all. It's not trying to prove the existence or disprove the existence of God. But a lot of people have been specifically told that. Um, Another thing that people get hung up on is they feel like it's just a guess at something. So, you know, misconceptions about the nature of laws and theories in science. Well, it's just a theory. Well, actually, a theory is where all of the power in science, that's where all the power is. The law tells you what happens, but then the theory is all the evidence and testing and explanation and data that support that observation. So more in the evangelical literalist tradition with young earth creationists, 
you know, the view there is that biblical text is the actual word of God, word for word, literal, laid out. And so therefore you get the 6,000 years of creation based on the begots. You know, you get the the literal 24-hour period in the Genesis story. So all of those things are seen as, you know, infallible. Well, if you take out one of those things and say, okay, this is not exact, this is, you know, meant to be a parable or or whatever, then to them, you're discrediting the entire Bible. So if one piece is inaccurate, then all the pieces are considered inaccurate. And they're not willing to question that or, you know, or accept that because to them, it undermines their faith. Imagine you go into a classroom and you're told by your teacher that today we have to put your beliefs aside to learn about the next topic in science. Or worse, you have to give up your beliefs altogether. Some teachers may say that they are ignorant to believe in God. How likely is it you will return to a classroom if you are repeatedly put down, told you're stupid, or that your religion, which is a huge part of your identity and your life, is something that you have to give up? That's not likely. So there has to be a better way. So what I do on a daily basis, I'm an assistant professor in science education. So I train future science teachers and I teach a lot of science content. But in terms of my research, I'm researching the teaching and learning of evolution in not only K-12 settings, but in higher education as well. Because my goal is, regardless of where people come from, regardless of culture, beliefs, background, religiosity... Everyone in the world needs to have a worldview that is incorporating scientific literacy because scientific literacy is that ability to evaluate evidence in the physical world and make decisions based on that evidence that's before you. But a lot of times how we try to teach people science or especially how we try to change people's minds about topics that they find to be controversial to them or cause conflict is this approach that, well, we'll just give them more evidence. We'll literally beat them to death with the evidence, and then they will magically accept our way of thinking, which, you know, in a lot of ways assumes that the person who doesn't accept your way of thinking is ignorant, and you're better than them, and there to impart wisdom upon them, right? Which, you know, when somebody acts like that, that really makes me want to learn what they're talking about. I don't know about you, but... You know, what I do is try to create mitigating spaces. So, you know, a lot of people of faith perceive people as science, people of science as being atheists, or they have the perception that in order to be scientifically minded, you have to give up your faith or, you know, compromise your faith. And a lot of people on the science side, you know, with very big voices, I will say, so that's how that perpetuates. So people on the scientific side, there are people like the Dawkinses and the Neil deGrasse Tysons who say that, you know, we're better off without religion. And so a lot of these things perpetuate this, this gap, this chasm where you've got religious people on one side and you've got scientific people on the other. And so people have a tendency to perceive this dichotomy where you can either be religious or scientific. If students believe that all scientists are atheists, they are less likely to accept science themselves if they come from a religious upbringing. So it's good to know that many, many scientists around the world are religious or believe in a higher power. 
even more of those who are atheists, don't see a reason that science and religions have to be at odds. There are many of us in the sciences across fields who are very religious people. We're people of faith, people of very different faith backgrounds and traditions. And it's it's a richness that a lot of people don't hear about or don't see because we're often not the ones on, you know, nationally syndicated shows sharing our ideas. And so my goal in my research is not only to understand, you know, what causes people to hang up on these topics, you know, what causes these issues, you know, what concerns do people have, but also the stories that they bring in. So, you know, what experiences have people had with learning about the sciences in formal education, informal education, in church, at home? You know, I collect those stories and then use those experiences to help create approaches to teaching and having these conversations even with the public that can help de-escalate some of the fear that people perceive and that helps really open a safe space for people to talk about these concepts or to ask questions where otherwise they may not have felt they had someone they could ask or they may have felt like they were being judged or they may want to understand, but they didn't grow up in a faith tradition. And so it helps them frame understanding. So it's really about creating a place in the middle where people can openly talk and engage in the science and learn about science, but also so people of science can learn about faith and those traditions and how those intersect. And it really just opens a gate for learning because the idea is not to supplant and destroy someone's worldview and replace it with your own. The idea is to celebrate the worldviews that people bring to the table, but then to also open a space where you can add a scientific worldview to what you already have. It's simple, really. The most important ingredient is respect. Respect your students. Respect your teachers. Let them know it's okay to ask questions. No one is going to judge you for being stupid. If people also see that scientists are like them, and that scientists can be evangelical Christians, they're much more likely to accept science themselves. Bridging the gap is not about necessarily changing their mind in a conversation, because that's not going to happen. But it's about creating a space where they are willing to explore and listen and learn, and planting a seed for them to be able to move into a comfort level with science that allows them to learn about it and be more open to it. Um, you know, people ask me all the time, well, what about these, you know, these hardcore literalist creationists? You know, I am relatively certain I am not going to ever move Ken Ham to an acceptance of evolution. Okay. But that's because that's not my goal. My goal is not to necessarily move everyone to accepting evolution. I mean, that would be great. But my goal is really geared towards the 70% of people in the middle. Because if you look at it like a bell curve, you know, you've got people at either extreme, but a majority of people lie somewhere in the middle and they are not sure, right? So they, they could really fall in either direction depending on the interactions that they have. And so the things that I do are not targeted towards, you know, specifically towards, okay, creationists, we need to get you all on this side. It's more towards all of the people that are in between that need a space to express you know, to express their concerns that need that space. And, you know, I put my energy towards those who are open and wanting to learn and who are asking questions. 
with the hope that by viewing the positive interactions that I have with others, that they are maybe moved to become more open. So I, I guess it's it's a matter of creating an example for what I would have liked to have when I was growing up, because my positionality really does um, lend itself a lot to my research. But then the way you interact with other people is often what brings people from the farthest edges to come a little bit closer. And so if that can happen, then that's fantastic. So it's it's still very much a hot button issue. It's very much a hot topic. And we know, you know, from research that students in the South are 84% less likely to receive accurate instruction on evolution and 10 times more likely than their peers around the country to receive any instruction in evolution at all. So it's it's still very much a hotbed and much to be done to impact science literacy. And evolution is just one of many mediums through which we can do that. And you may wonder what Amanda's family thinks about what she does. Amanda's interactions with her family is a testament that this method of respect works. Individual people here and there are seeing that they can believe in religion and also accept science. So interestingly enough, when I first started doing this, it was kind of shock and awe and horror. Um, I tell people I've got a 13 page handwritten letter from my grandmother um, because she was she, well, she she honestly thought that I was going to burn in hell and she would never see me again after she died because I was going to go to hell because I was studying evolution and subscribed to that. And how could I possibly do that? So it, it was very hard at first, but over years of just talking to them, you know, I, the same approach that I try to integrate into all of the trainings that I do for people and the conversations that I have are the same ones that I'm having with my family at home and just explaining to them, you know, the process that I went through and the things that I have learned. And, you know, I have been doing this particular line of research now for 11 years. And even as recently as, you know, a few years ago, I would get a text message from my dad saying, okay, tell me about this Lucy, you know, and, and that just, it doesn't sound like anything, but to me it was, you know, the world stopped for a minute and my head spun because what it means is, yes, it's taken a long time and a lot of conversations and a lot of patience and me not judging them and them, you know, loving me and really wanting to understand but it's opened a lot of doors for my family. And so a lot of them, even though, you know, it's still a missions related and ministry family, they're opening, it's opening doors for them to ask questions that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to ask. You know, I was walking through the Perot Museum back in October and they have human origins. Uh, they've got Australopithecus sediba and Homo naledi discovered by Lee Berger uh, there in South Africa at Maripeng. And I'm walking through this exhibit and I'm, I'm, cr- I'm ugly crying like a baby just because of the weight of this thing. Um, it, it's just so immense and it's so incredible and, and so beautifully orchestrated as you go through the the exhibit and then see these, these human ancestors there. And I remember walking through and videotaping it and sending it to my mother. 
and getting a text back talking about how beautiful everything was. And it's just so incredible to see those things and then dot, 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 know those people. And I was just floored. I mean, I was floored because it was, it was a human evolution moment and she has started to associate, you know, that we have this story and this story does not in any way diminish, you know, God, it does not diminish his creation. It's just a little different from that literalist interpretation. If you take it, you know, in, in the way that they had originally been taught, but even my grandmother, you know, she passed away in 2000, in November of 2015, but before she died, she actually came and told me, we, we were sitting and talking about it one day. And she said, you know, I realize now that this is your testimony. And, and I really ruminate on that a lot because, you know, in a lot of ways, she's right. You know, everybody has their story that they tell and, and their story of faith. And it was through really having a great challenge of my faith. And for a while there, almost, you know, I felt like I lost my faith because I lost my community, you know, by, by questioning and pursuing this line, I became different from my church family and community in which I grew up. But through all of that and through really looking for the answers and questioning those things, that's where my strength of faith has come from. And I've got a stronger faith now than I've had ever in my life. Even when I thought, you know, I was this this young person of faith, I didn't really understand what I believed and didn't really understand why, you know, I believed as I did. And now I have that. But but she was right. This is my testimony. And she, you know, she even became very comfortable and happy and, and supportive of what I was doing because she recognized, you know, I wasn't throwing away faith. I wasn't, you know, choosing one or the uh, one over the other. I wasn't, you know, throwing away my beliefs, but what I was doing was learning them, learning what I believe in and learning about the world around me and then using my experience and my story to help people of faith navigate learning in science and acceptance of science and willingness, you know, to ask questions and want to know about science, but also in a way that was respectful of their faith and their beliefs and and inclusive. And so that to me was very powerful. And I have a fantastic relationship with my family. I mean, we are incredibly close, generationally, actually. So, you know, I I like to joke that I'm one of the few people that actually knows their eighth cousins by name. But, um, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're hugely supportive. And I, I think that speaks to what I do that within my own family, you know, because of their interactions with me and talking about the way I do things, you know, have, have opened, made them more open and willing to ask questions and learn about these things as well. So that to me is, has been the greatest part of it. So there you have it. Take one of the most quote unquote controversial science topics and religion. Maybe it doesn't have to be so controversial after all. Amanda, her family, and her students all get it. It's a false dichotomy in our minds that tells us that people who are religious cannot be scientists. Science is for everybody. And the lesson from Amanda is respect. Respect your students. Respect those you interact with. If we all do this, science will even be more widely accepted. 
Spark Dialogue podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or any of your podcasting platforms. Remember, if you're a patron of this podcast, check out the bonus content on patreon.com slash sparkdialogue. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you in two weeks for another episode. Some of the background music you heard was produced by me. Others are clips from Forgotten Land by Dokson Sigmund, Still Pickin' by Kevin McLeod, Falling In by Psychic, Burning the Microwaves by Spinmeister, Little Candle by Stefan Kartenberg, and Quiet the Mind, instrumental by Mr. Pepino. More information and links to these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.